You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. Uh, If you have your Bibles, like I said, turn them to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to dig right in. Just a little bit of a backstory, how this sermon series on the Sermon of the Mount called Countercultural came to be. Um, This spring, we were week after week looking at churches in the New Testament that Jesus had harsh words for or praise for. And, And what we found was a diagnostic. The problem has been and always will be sin. And so Jesus is not holding anything back when he's dealing with these seven churches in Revelation He's telling us how it is, and we learn from that what we want to be and what we don't want to be. And hopefully that was a time that was maybe eye-opening to you. And the reason I felt led to do that this spring is because everyone around me, including myself, kept making statements, including myself especially, man, this is like the worst it's ever been. Have you thought that in this year? For me, 2020 was bad, but but then 2021 was, was rough too. And morally, I'm looking around at everything going on, and I'm telling myself, This is the worst that I've ever seen. Like things that I thought would never happen in my lifetime, or at least I would be in the skit group before this happened. Uh, Those things, right, those things are happening here and now. How many of you can relate to this, that there are things happening in culture right now that you never thought you'd see in your lifetime? Rights that are wrong, right, or wrongs that are being told that, are right. I mean, things that you thought, well, if that happens, and I remember preachers like 15 years ago saying some of these things would happen, and we all looked at them and said, that's a bit much, that's a bit extreme, and now we're going, well, I don't know, it might actually be that way, or it actually already is that way, and I never saw it coming. And so this spring, we looked at those churches, and the reason that I felt led to do that is I wanted to show you something, that the problem has always been sin, and it's not as bad, it's not worse than it ever has been, it's always been bad, and 2,000 years ago, it was really bad in the problem of sin, and so what we did is we laid out for you a diagnostic. And what I told you in in the weeks to come is that we're not gonna just end on a diagnostic, we're gonna have a prescription. How do you, if the problem is sin, when you come to Christ, when your life is changed by him, how do you then live differently? There's always needs to be in the medical arena a prescription to your diagnosis or it's worthless. And so now for the next summertime you know, weeks, you can listen online if you're not here every week in the summertime, we are gonna lay out for you what Jesus says to his small group, his disciples, is the prescription for how to live differently. In the last two weeks, we've been looking at the Beatitudes and what it exactly means to look like when you, when you look like and live out your faith as a follower of Christ. And now we're walking into this famous text. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is literally on a mountain. He's overlooking a body of water. He has a large group of people following him. And now it goes from a large group to a small group where he's looking at his disciples in the eye. He's having an intimate conversation with them. And he's saying, this is how you actually live out your faith And as we land here on this 4th of July, we land on a very, very famous text. He starts talking about what it looks like to live differently than the world, and he says these two things, and we're going to read them together. He says, in the Christian physiological DNA, or spiritually speaking, there are two main components to your life. You are salt, and you are light. 
You are salt and you are light. That, that's however long it takes today, and I promise it won't take too long. Those are the only two things that we're gonna cover. Those are the things that Jesus says that we are. It's not the things that we're gonna be if we work hard enough to try to get there. When you say yes to following Jesus, those are the two components that make up your spiritual DNA, your salt and your light. And so because it's a metaphor, this whole idea of salt, I think a lot of times we can maybe go off on a tangent and try to get as creative as possible from the pulpit about what salt is and what salt does. And because it's a metaphor, you can do that. So, so here are some things I've heard in the past. I actually listened to a handful of sermons on this topic before I got up here today. And uh, I had some time in Tennessee this past week, so at, at nighttime I was listening to some things. Uh, someone said this, salt brings flavor, so we as the church bring flavor to society. Another person, I didn't hear him say this, I read this one. Salt is a fertilizer, so we as a church create ground where spiritual growth can occur. Is that true? I think, so. I think that's true, but my point's gonna be in just a second that that's really not the point of this text. Or, or another good point could be made. When you, uh, when you eat salt, you become thirsty, and when the world is near the church, we should create a thirst for the gospel. Or salt is white, and white is a symbol of purity in the New Testament, so the church should be pure. Or maybe you could even go a little further out, taking this out of context and going, well, salt is broken down to really small parts, and the church should also break into really small parts, and we should live in community because we're the salt of the earth. Here, here's my point. All of those things are valid, but I want you to hear this because maybe you've heard a sermon on this topic. In fact, if you've been a Christian long enough, you've heard a lot of sermons on this topic. My point is this. None of these metaphors represent the main point of what Jesus is getting at. The main point of what Jesus is getting at with his church is simplistic and it's powerful. What Jesus is saying to New Life 2021 is this, you are the salt of the earth and you need to be set apart in your lifestyle because that's what salt does. As you're set apart in your lifestyle, not just telling people about who I am, but showing them in the way that you live, then the world takes notice because you're gonna live differently, and when you live differently, things are gonna change. Here, here, here's where I'm laying the groundwork for this. Here's the American tragedy. It's a Western tragedy. It's, it's more than just America, but it's a tragedy. If the whole idea to living as salt and living as light is the DNA, you know, spiritual makeup of the Christian, then we are absolutely, in Western culture, failing miserably. So if there should be this clear distinction, this is what God's people look like, this is what the world looks like, and it should be so obvious to a lost world that there's something different about us, then if that's our matrix for success, then we are absolutely failing miserably because data tells us that we're failing. It's not a subjective reality, it's an absolute concrete reality. Regardless of whether or not you like what I'm saying, there's empirical data to back up this claim. The church looks strikingly similar to the world. Let's use marriage as an example. Did you guys, maybe you've already, this isn't the first time I've said anything like this. Maybe you've heard it or maybe you already knew it. Did you guys know that divorce rates within the church are strikingly similar to divorce rates outside of the church? That's not to just divorce shame anyone that comes in here who's been through a rough situation, but Shouldn't that kind of be a matrix for something that looks a little bit different if you're a follower of Christ? There is really no significant difference between people who are coming to church on a Sunday morning and the divorce rate within that people group and people that are living outside of the world who are saying, I don't really follow Jesus at all. 
or maybe a more personal example is this whole idea of sexual immorality altogether. There is a very little distinguishing marker between people who are addicted to pornographic images inside of the church and outside of the church. That's a fact. I told you, I remember I told you guys this like eight or nine years ago. I, I found this old statement that I made that I found from a guy named Matt Chandler. Did you, I just want to maybe take a quick survey on this. I think it's very important. What is the number one day that people look at pornographic images on the internet? Does anyone remember that? I'm going way back in the vault. You're going, I've only been here like six months. Just take a stab at it because you're in church. It's Sunday. Sunday. And so Christians all around the country, all around the world, are singing great is thy faithfulness and taking their communion and then going home and cheating on their spouse through an internet image. Jesus sets the groundwork out of the gate. The first thing he does after the crowds are following him in Matthew chapter five is he preaches this countercultural sermon. And it's, it's the longest sermon that Jesus gives, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a few chapters long. It's taking all summer to get through. And the first thing that he lays out is he brings them all together. The Bible says that, that he's eye level with them. He sits down. This is what rabbis would have done. He sits down and he has this moment because they're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the power to usher in, for their life to get better. And he starts laying out these principles. You have to, look at me. You have to live differently. This is not a negotiable thing. If you're gonna be a follower of me, Everything in your life has to change, not by you trying harder, but by you surrendering more. If you're gonna follow me, you're not gonna follow the trends of culture. In 2021, that's taking us to some very dark places. If you're gonna follow me, you have to live differently because that's what I demand of you, and I am not here to disrupt some things. I am here to blow things up. I'm here to live 100% differently. I am a Messiah that is completely counterintuitive to what you think is to be true. I am a Messiah who demands that as culture goes one way, you are to be countercultural and to go another way, and that's what's gonna make you the salt, and that's what's gonna make you the light. And so all of that is an entry. It's gonna go kind of quick after this. I want us to read together Matthew chapter five, these famous verses, and I want you to look at them through a specific lens of life change. Look at verse 13. Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. He says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for, underline this in your Bible, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Underline this one word, anything. It's no longer good for anything. It's worthless. He then says this, he says the second part, he says, you are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the entire house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Two quick, two points, I don't know how quick they'll be, they'll be kind of quick. Here's the deal about salt, it's, it's set apart. And I wanted to explain what I mean by that. Just fill this in, write it down, it's worth taking home. Here is the main context of what Jesus is saying. Salt preserves, that's what it was designed to do in the New Testament. 
And the reason that's worth explaining is because we have a different view of salt. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? I just laid out like seven or eight things. You can, you can really, you could think of a million things as a metaphor. But what Jesus is saying in New Testament terms that everyone would have understood is that salt is a preservative and our lives are to be set apart. We're not living like the rest of the world when we say yes to Jesus. And so in today's day and age, we don't have to really worry about preservatives. For us, salt is more about flavor, right? Anyone love salt? And you can't just get enough of beef jerky and, and peanuts and your, you know, your poor blood pressure. You're kind of that guy. It's not about sweets. It seems to me like there's only two camps. There's the, well, there's three camps. There's the salt crowd. Anyone the salt crowd over the sweets crowd? How about the sweets? All right, how about D all of the above? You're the third crowd. That's my crowd. That's called the health crisis crowd. 2,000 years ago, it wasn't that type of discussion. When he says they're the salt of the earth, they're not thinking, you know what, when I eat my broccoli without salt, it's not the best. That's not really where they're going. They didn't have, you know, two or three refrigerators in the house and, and a freezer with a, just a, a piled high of meat. That's not how they lived. And so what they would have is salt, but it was, it was a commodity that was precious. It was a commodity that was valuable. And what they would do with that salt is they would, you know, they would take that sirloin steak or, you know, probably a, a rack of lamb or whatever it was in the New Testament. They didn't have a lot of it because that was something that rich people would have, uh, but they would have some of that and they wouldn't have a refrigerator or freezer. And so they would take this, uh, you know, cube of salt and they would just rub it on their meal so that they wouldn't get food poisoning and die, so that their meat would not rot. And he says something that's scientifically impossible. He says this statement. He says, if salt loses its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? So I kind of looked into this. I thought it was interesting. This actually cannot happen. If it's actual salt, it can't lose its saltiness. If it loses its saltiness, the only way that that can happen is it has to be diluted. And this would happen. I, I looked into this even further because I was nerding out this week on my trip. And then I was listening to people smarter than me that knew more about history than me. This was something that would happen, that people would take salt, this precious commodity, because, I mean, I think something has a pretty high value if it can stop you from getting food poisoning or dying, right, from rotten meat. And so it was something that really mattered. And so what they would do to make a more profit is they would take this pure salt and they would dilute it and it would be kind of like a half and half. And then they would sell you the half and half. And I think the only way to really understand that in modern terms is, is drug dealers, you know, you, you take the cocaine, which I, I swear I've never done, and you add some, I mean, what would you add to that? Powdered sugar or something like that. And, uh, or you take the, the marijuana and you put some oregano in it and you mix it all together and your profit margin sky, is sky high. That's what it would have looked like in the New Testament. People would add stuff to the salt and then the salt would lose its saltiness and then all of a sudden, you'd eat that T-bone steak for dinner, and 12 hours later, you'd croak. Jesus is making a very, very strong point. He's saying when you dilute the salt and it loses its saltiness, it's no longer preservative, and now it is open to decay. And he makes this statement. I told you to underline this word. He says, it is good for nothing. What is it good for? It's not good for anything. It's not kind of good. It's not like, well, you know, I guess I can buy that salt on the discounted market because it's not 100% salt, but it's about 60%, and that's not too bad. No, you don't want to touch meat that only has 60%. And so it goes from something that's incredibly valuable to incredibly worthless. Pure uncut salt 
Pure uncut salt was something that they absolutely needed in their culture. And he says, you're the salt of the earth. And so they, they, they were trying to do something. He, I find it interesting that Jesus is dealing with this right out of the gate. And then you see it in these churches that we went through this spring. And so he deals with it right out of the gate. He addresses it when it doesn't happen with these churches. He now is dealing with it with the first leadership team that he ever develops. He's talking to his people and he's making this statement. He, he's projecting into the future. He's, he's saying this to his church. He's saying, as we get started here and I'm establishing these beatitudes and laying out for you the Sermon on the Mount, I know something that you don't know with, about yet. You are gonna be incredibly tempted to mold and to be shaped into this world. There are gonna be temptations that cross your path where you're not gonna want to be the salt and you're not gonna wanna be the light because salt is not always flattering the people around you. Have you guys ever gone to the ocean and accidentally opened your eyes in the ocean? It's incredibly painful. Like sometimes salt exposes something or you take some salt and you pour it on an open flesh wound. I don't know about you, but that's never gone well for me. Salt isn't also always very flattering. He's saying, you are the separator. You are the salt of the earth. And just so you know, there are gonna be these seasons, and they're not gonna be small seasons. It's gonna be predominant in your life where you're not gonna wanna go against the grain. You're not gonna wanna be countercultural. You're gonna wanna do things like the majority of people are doing things. And when you get called into question or called into account, everything in your sinful nature and you think it's a humble response to say, I wanna be liked, but really what it is, it's selfishness when you say, I wanna be liked more than I wanna follow Jesus. You are gonna be so tempted to get cozy with the world, and he says this, it's gonna just wreak havoc on your ability to minister to hurting people. It is going to wreak havoc on your ability to separate yourself from people that don't follow me. There's this article that I wanna to read to you real quick. I found it so fascinating. There has been, just getting very specific, there has been a massive push in the last 50 years for churches and pastors and denominations, uh, and, and more important than that, probably theological training centers to get away from the word of God and to cozy up to the world. And counterintuitively, how many of you would look at that and go, well, that should work great, right? Because about 80% of people now agree with what they're saying. You know, for a church to go, well, I know the Bible says this, but is that really true? And, you know, do we really have to create this type of divide on morality and things that have become incredibly unpopular in the world around us? Can't we just kind of morph our own values and belief systems into theirs so that we can all just get along? How many of you intuitively would hear that and go, well, I don't think it's right, but it should, in essence, work because most people agree. Jesus makes this statement prophetically 2,000 years ago to his first team. He says this, you, if you go that route, if you become saltless, you will die. You will be worth nothing. And here's what's so powerful about that. That's exactly what's happened in mainline movements who have said the Bible is not the word of God. That's exactly what's happened. They are literally dying in droves. And here, here's why I think why. Matt Chandler says this. I think this is interesting. Write this down. I got one thing for you to write down today. This is it. Write it down. He says, you cannot be an agent of redemption if your message states that you have nothing to be redeemed from. I think that's important, so I'm going to say that one more time. He says, you can't be an agent of redemption if your message states that you have nothing to be redeemed from. 
And so intuitively, you would believe that, well, if we adopt these different ideals that aren't according to Scripture, that are less controversial, where everyone wants to get around a table and say, sing kumbaya and say, what works for you works for you, and I'm not going to judge, you would think that that would have a more powerful punch to it because now we can all just agree. Here's what people have actually done, though. People have said, I believe in the same ideals that you have, but I see absolutely no reason to be a part of what you're a part of because I can do that from my home. And I'm gonna read it one more time. You can't be an agent of redemption if your message states that you have nothing to be redeemed from. I wanna read you this article. A guy named Ed Stetzer in 2017. So this is, a lot of my stuff is post-COVID you know, drama from the pulpit. Well, it's gotten so bad after COVID. This was uh, four years ago, right after Easter, which should have been this huge celebration and everything should be going well right after Easter. Ed Stetzer, who admittedly, like myself, is an evangelical and also studies church decline, wrote an article in the Washington Post, and it, and it states this. Uh, he says this, if it doesn't stem its decline, mainline Protestantism has just 23 Easter's left. And so I told that to the leadership team before church, and I think it sounds a bit dramatic, and I don't know if that'll be true or not, um, but just follow the train of thought. I'm gonna read this to you. He said, in 2017, Christians recently celebrated Easter, a Sunday where many churches are robust and full. But if current trends uh, continue, mainline Protestants have about 23 Easter's left. The news of mainline Protestants' decline is hardly new. Yet the trend lines are showing a trajectory towards zero in both those who attend the mainline church regularly and those who identify with the mainline denomination 23 uh, years from now. And it's, here's what he said that really hit me. He said this. He said, while the sky isn't falling, the floor is dropping out. The trajectory, which has been a discussion amongst researchers for years, is partly related to demographics. Mainline Protestants, which has been the tradition of several U.S. presidents, aren't multiplying with their children as rapidly as evangelicals or othering of differing, others of differing faiths. And geography matters. Places where Protestants live are now in socioeconomic decline, and parts of the country like the Sun Belt are becoming more evangelical with every winter passing. And here, here's what he says. Recent release data from the General Society Social Survey, sorted by what is called the real trad, shows that mainline Protestants are in the midst of a decades-long decline, and it's intensifying in its most recent survey. It's not the whole story, but here, here's the diagnostic. He says, it's not the whole story, but there's an argument for at least part of what's happened. Over the past few decades, some mainline Protestants have abandoned central doctrines that are deemed offensive to the surrounding culture. Jesus literally died for our sins and rose from the dead, the view of the authority of the Bible, the need for personal conversion, and more. Some mainline Protestant leaders rejected or minimized these beliefs, beliefs that made the protest and Protestantism 500 years ago as an invitation for more people to join a more culturally relevant and socially acceptable church. Does not that, I just want to stop there for a second. Does not that just not seem like intuitively that should be an effective strategy? That should work, right? They'd go, well, this stuff's not popular, so we're going to abandon it. But if the mainline Protestant expression isn't different enough from mainstream culture, people turn to other answers. He says this, I'm an eva evangelical, I'm just self-admitting. However, I became a Christian in the very mainline Episcopal Church. I take no delight in mainline Protestant decline, and I'm hoping and praying for a reversal. And I know many in the mainline Protestant tradition seek to follow Jesus and are working to change the trend line of decline. 
And ultimately, mainline Protestants likely do have many more than 23 Easter's left. He's saying, I know that that's dramatic. Churches will be restarted and revitalized, and there'll be an advancement in initiatives. Mainline Protestants won't cease to exist completely in 23 years because the trend will probably slow, but the data does not give us good hope for the future. Ed says, my personal hope is that mainline Protestants will experience a resurrection of sorts, something Christians tend to have in faith, uh, Christians tend to have faith in. However, such a move won't come from following the trajectory that it's been following. The future of mainline Protestants is connected to Christianity's essential past, where the resurrection can be proclaimed against uh, unashamedly. Jesus is not just a good person who suffered unjustly. unjustly. Jesus' death and resurrection makes our dead souls alive again. In the 1970s, Dean Kelly wrote an often-cited book on why conservative churches are growing, stating that even amid hostility towards organized religion, conservative churches seem to grow. Is part of the answer for mainline Protestants to grow more conservative? It depends on how you define conservative, and he breaks that down. But he says this, we found 93% of clergy members and 83% of clergy worshipers from growing churches, and I want you just to hear this and absorb it, 93% of clergy members and 83% of worshipers from growing churches agreed with the statement, Jesus rose from the dead with a real flesh and blood body, leaving behind an empty tomb. But compared with 67% of worshipers and 56%, half of all clergy in these movements, do not agree with this statement, that Jesus Christ literally rose from the dead. That he's the way of salvation. That without him, there's no hope. Half of clergy in these movements are going, I don't believe that. Look at me, if you don't believe that, then don't come. If you don't believe that, then I would just urge you to quit tithing to your local church because if that's not true, we are completely and utterly wasting our time here. Half of churches in mainline movements have pastors that are going, I don't actually believe that's true. I was talking to a guy who's pastoring about 40 miles from here in a church that's really struggling that, that has its roots in the last decade uh, in, in very liberal ideas from the pulpit. And he said this as a conservative working in a Methodist church. He's actually someone that I love dearly who's on staff here for a little while. Uh, he said, I am the first pastor to open the Bible in seven stinking years from the pulpit. I didn't even realize I was getting worked up. I'm getting all worked up. I'm just gonna paraphrase it, it's too long. I, I thought it was so good and then I went, oh wow, this is long. Last paragraph, I imagine that many mainline Protestants would agree and perhaps the supernatural message of Easter believed and shared widely could bring the resurrection that mainline Protestants need. The reality is, because he wrote it in 2017, that 2039 is just not that far away. It's just not that far away. Here's the last thing he says. I'm gonna read it again, verse 14. He says, you're the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You want to underline something else, underline this statement, so that, so that, there is a condition. If you do this, 
then this could possibly be the outcome. My second point, and we're going to close with this, is this, that light that we're called to be, light invades. Light doesn't take a back seat. Salt is salty, and it has a bitterness to it. It has a controversy to it. I'm not saying that we should all go out and be jerks because we're Christians, but we shouldn't keep our mouths shut either. We should stand up for the word of God, and we shouldn't be ashamed of it. And light, when Christ, Christ is the light, we're just reflectors of the light. When light enters into something, it does something in a way that is so incredibly powerful. I think I said this a few weeks ago, but I want to say it again. Do you guys know what the speed of light is? As I heard a bunch of like rain men start saying 100, 500, Here's what it is. <laughs> it's 186,282 miles per second. You know what the Bible refers to God as? What? Light. All right, wake up, 4th of July. We're going to go blow stuff up later. Wake up. <laughs> light. God is light. He, here's, I, I nerded out on this one too. I, Google was my friend this week. What moves faster than light? According to my Google search and series, my friend, nothing. Nothing. Light's the fastest, and then you could come with me at the church and be, actually, that's not true. Whatever, this is my Google search. My point is this, I'm not very smart, so I'll just say this. It moves really, really fast. 182,000 miles per second. And Einstein says this, all massive particles could only approach it as far as how quick it is, but would never reach it. This light is powerful. The Holy Spirit's living in us. We're the salt and we're the light and we're not gonna hide it under a lampstand. We are gonna be letting it shine and what it's doing is because it's not, we're not the light, we're reflectors of the light. As we follow Christ and as we obey him and we say we're not gonna be a part of everything that's going on in the world around us, we're gonna be something different and our church, you know, as a people, isn't gonna decline, it's gonna grow even though we're controversial is because people are starving for truth. People are starving for truth. We're reflecting what's greater than us. We're saying to a lost world around us, our Jesus saves, our Jesus is a massive, massive deal. He's not a part of your life. He's the whole equation. And I firmly believe that we're gonna see this in our lifetime, and it's not gonna take much longer. In our little Bible Belt area called Aberdeen, South Dakota, there's gonna be fewer and fewer and fewer churches, and they're gonna die, and churches that are genuinely preaching Christ crucified and the power of his resurrection and the authority of Scripture are gonna grow. Because I'm believing the promise of this text. We have something that the world desperately needs, even if they think they don't want it. We have Jesus. We have Jesus in all of his controversy. We have Jesus in all of his power and his authority. It says that we're a city on a hill. I told you guys when we were going through this seven churches that cities on a hill were powerful. Cities on a hill were wealthy. It wasn't just that you could see them, they had military advantage. Uh, you, if you had power, you wanted to be on a hill so that no one can invade you, they would have to come up the hill and you could shoot stuff at them and kill them. And so they all understood this, cities on a hill, those were the cities that you wanted to be like. He says, when you follow me, you are this city that people see and take notice of. I'll close with this last story and then we're out of here. I was in Nashville last week, it's kind of a weird story why I'd never thought I'd really 
go to Nashville until I made it in country music, but uh, <laughs> I decided to go anyways because that never happened. But uh, uh, my sister's sons, so my nephew's girlfriend, almost fiance's parents, this is getting long, right? <laughs> Cousins, nephews, uncles. My <laughs> so my relatives, not blood, parents had this huge cabin in Nashville. And one thing about the Johnsons, we have a common denominator, we're cheap. So we said, hey, that sounds like a very economically efficient vacation. And so we went to Nashville for about four or five days. Um, we took my son's car that I just got him. It's a, it's a five passenger. There's five of us. And we drove it about 3,200 miles in five days. And uh, we never fought one time. It was an absolute miracle. <laughs> Besides about every other minute, we never fought. And so we're, we're in this car. We get to Nashville. And uh, we all have our bucket list, right? I mean, what would you do if you were in Nashville? Well, I wanted to go see the Johnny Cash Museum. Anyone? Um, God spoke to me. I saw something that obviously is not the scripture authority, but I saw something that uh, outside of anything related to Jesus is about the most sacred document that I've ever seen. I saw the original lyrics to Walk the Line. I can send you a picture if you have my cell phone number. And then Johnny Cash took his foot. Totally not a part of the message. He took his foot and he outlined it on Walk the Line, and then he turned it in. And so that, for me, was life-changing. I actually have a picture of us in Nashville. I don't, I hope that, yeah, so this is us, um, the Johnsons and the Wilsons, and uh, the L.A. hat that's not popular in Nashville. But behind that, you see the Cash Museum, right? So, so we're in Nashville, and I, and I always thought, um, basically, I just like the way I look in this picture, so I wanted to show that to you, but... Uh, <laughs> No, th this is our family getting our, you know, free vacation in Nashville. We're hanging out, and I got to see the Johnny Cash Museum, and I love country music, and I thought, well, Nashville, that's just a place where, you know, you think of Johnny Cash, you, you, you think of all of these nostalgic things, and then I get there. Have you guys been to Nashville? Um, my experience, it, it felt like Mardi Gras, and I've never been to Mardi Gras, so you're going, no, no, trust me, it's not Mardi Gras. Um, you get there in the summertime on a weekend and there's a bunch of college students and their faces are red and they're just acting insane. Um, I think the blood alcohol content had to be through the roof. Everyone around us, have you been there? Everyone around us was, was hammered. And, um, and, and, and in the midst of all of that, you know, I'm sadly enough not doing any street evangelism or anything like that. I'm just eating a burger at Johnny Cash's place. But I'm watching all this take place and I think it was so significant, number one, because... Um, because this girl's with me, right? And I'm going, oh my goodness, right? she's with me. And, uh, and I'm looking at all these things happening. There's these tractors. This is Nashville. There's these tractors pulling these big um, party bus units with a bunch of bridesmaids about every 10 seconds. And there's this you know, song that'll come on. Baby, you're a song. You make me want to roll my wind. And they're just like, yeah. You know? And they're looking at the crowd like, yeah, you're hot. And I mean, they're half dressed and uh, just like probably young professionals in their 30s and going, if I was sober, I'd be appalled at what I'm doing. And uh, I, I'm going, I had no context for this. I didn't realize that's what they did in Nashville because here's the other reality of Nashville. I'm gonna bring it all back in and I'm gonna close. The other reality of Nashville is everyone you talk to is a Christian. Everyone you talk to, and there's no atheists, right? I mean, this is the Bible Belt. And so there's this reality that I think fits perfectly into what we're talking about this morning. On one hand, everyone would identify as being salt, but on the flip side, based on the case study of multiple thousand that I saw downtown that day, not everyone's very salty. 
They're incredibly deluded. Right? They're sitting on their party bus and then they're going to church on Sunday and every Southern preacher would tell you that's the South. And, and I'm watching this happen. And so here, here's why I tell you this story. There, there's this other thing that happens. There's this guy in the middle of the crowd. He's an old guy. He's got facial hair. He's shorter. He's got this huge sign. And he holds it up high and it says, Christians by name only. And there are people, I mean, he's in the center of the crowd. They're flowing back and forth. And he's holding this thing high and he's just straight faced. I should have taken a picture of it. Christians by name only. And I knew at that point I was going to be talking to you guys about being salty. Being the salt and the light of the earth. And I thought, that is exactly what's going on. That is exactly what Jesus is attacking. He says, you're a city on a hill. And what you have, if you're not salty, hear me just say this and we're gonna pray. You have belief without conviction. And it's repulsive. And when someone's going through a crisis and you're called to minister to them as a, as a follower of Christ, and they see this thing in your life that's belief without conviction. When you see all of this happening, man, they're not gonna come to you. The people that I go to, the people that I direct people to in this church, they're salty. I've got women, we're mentoring a, a young girl in our youth group right now, my wife is. Like I'm thinking of women that can mentor her in her life because she's really made a strong decision to follow Christ recently and everything's changing in her life. There are these other women that I'm already thinking and praying about. You know, who are these women? They have belief and conviction. They're the salt of the earth. They're a light and they're a city on a hill that I can direct her to to show her this is what it looks like to follow Christ. And she's gonna see something that's so real and authentic that she is gonna be like a magnet to those people. If nothing in our life looks differently, if our issues with sexual morality or living together before we're married or, you know, like pornography or how we spend our finance, if fundamentally nothing is different, then how do we look at a lost and dying world and go, you desperately need what I have? I know that I want to look exactly like you, but you desperately need what I have. Come to church Sunday. People aren't that stupid. Jesus is calling his church be the salt, be the light, live differently, follow me with passion. I bled out on a cross, I rose from the dead. This is a countercultural movement. There is nothing in your life that will stay the same, but it'll never be boring. Follow me, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you and you alone. We come to you this morning, it's before we go out and, and celebrate the day at the lake or we're grilling out or whatever we do, and we, we just have this moment with you as a church. I pray that you would convict our hearts, convict my heart as a pastor to live differently, to serve you passionately. And if there's anyone in this space that's never declared you a savior, and if they were to do an honest inventory, they would say they're religious, but their life looks no different no different than a lost world around them, then open their eyes right now to the reality of their sin, that they would declare you as Savior, that they would follow you with their heart.
They'd repent of their sin and say, Jesus, you're the way. I want to, be, I want to follow you for real. We pray these things in your precious name. Everybody said, amen, amen.